0: to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Well, we're not in the middle of a series that we have actually come up with. Uh, We're in the middle of a, a really little season where God is actually depositing what He wants to speak about. We don't have a name for it. Uh, uh, Sarah preached last week on seeds and it was quite strange because um, we were praying in the office the week previous and felt, uh, I, th- I can't remember, either she said or I said something about seeds and it was this bizarre thing that we both felt, the Holy Spirit wanted us to preach on seeds. Uh, they're actually different sermons, so this is the seed sermon week two, brought to you by the Holy Spirit, not us. <laughs> so there's no uh, graphic for it because the spirit hasn't done that yet. Never say never. Uh, The modern age from the beginning has been called by many people the age of velocity, the age of speed. The thing about the modern world is that everything speeds up, we saw this early on when people seeing the first cars arrive thought that humans would literally die going in a vehicle that could go 30 miles an hour. When the first moving pictures were shown in cinemas, nurses had to be on hand because people were so disorientated by the sight of things moving on a screen that people actually physically overcome. We see computing power speeding up the distance it takes to get from one side of the world is shortened and will shorten even more soon. We can instantly download things that used to take months to get to us. In the 1940s and 1950s to go to the UK, if you want to do a trip to the UK, it was a one-month boat ride. Uh, Soon, Qantas is currently uh, training its staff to do long-haul flights. I think they're looking at a non-stop flight and whether humans can stay on a plane for 20 hours, which you can. don't know why they're doing that testing. Um, (laughs) And the whole world is speeding up. And the world of speed creates a lens of speed by which we view the world. A fast world means you look at it through fast lenses. And a world of speed becomes a world of high performance, where we look at everything through the lens, not just of speed, but the competition that that brings. In a world of speed, the physically strong, the mentally fast, the people with high octane energy are the ones who seem to profit and gain. For others who try and keep up, and the message given everywhere is that you can keep up, actually find themselves in a fast world, increasingly tired and anxious that they can't live up to the desires and dreams of the world of speed. Now, if you've been to an Australian supermarket in the last couple of years, you'll notice that Australian supermarkets have caught up with a marketing tool that uh, McDonald's sort of discovered um, some time ago, which is called Pester Power, where basically you give a little trinket so that kids will then pester their parents to go to buy at that particular store. And both Safeway and Coles have had all different little you know, trinkets, plastic things that you can buy and collect in sets. The current thing they have at the moment, uh, I think at Woolworths, or Safeway, is basically these little seeds that you can collect. It's a bit nicer than a, uh, a, uh, like a plastic uh, trinket. But my son, Billy, who is here tonight, uh, got some of these. Oh, my kids did. And I came home, uh, I think this was during the week, and this is Billy, Um, he's up the back over there, we won't point him out, Uh, this is his moment of fame. And uh, he had gotten these, they'd gone to the supermarket, I think after school, and had come home and had done all what you're meant to do, you get get a little pot that you can put them in, you get some little dirt and and, potting mix or whatever, and put the seeds in. And I came in after work and I'm talking to him and they'd been in these pots for about an hour or two. And Bill asked me and said, Dad, when are they gonna sprout? When are they gonna grow? And I think my answer to him was, look, at best, maybe five, six weeks. And for Bill, this just blew his mind. The concept that something would take that long to sprout up is shocking, particularly as you've got increasingly young people raised through the lens of speed. But, I want to preach on tonight that actually we need to not look at the world through the lens of speed, but look at the world through the lens of the seed. In fact, I also want to say that we're living in the moment of the seed. The world's categorization of this moment is that we live in a moment of high performance, rapid technological advance. But I actually, I want to say spiritually, we're living in a moment of the seed. Where seeds are out there in the world, waiting to be discovered. First Peter. Chapter 1, verses 23 to 25 says this, and Peter is preaching to a church here who finds itself experiencing persecution and opposition. It finds itself small and weak in comparison to the Greco-Roman world around it. The power of Rome is everywhere, but it's a tiny, small, little organism. And Peter is encouraging them, and he says this, for you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. And then he compares this concept of a seed that is imperishable with a piece of scripture that's actually from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, where it says this, all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers in the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This had been true as the Israelites found themselves in exile in a place called Babylon, which was powerful and the world leader at that time. And the people of God still believed, and the word was still true, but Babylon wasn't as powerful as it was when that was spoken. And he's using that and saying, Rome looks powerful now, it looks like the moment of Rome's power, but actually what is important is not these flowers which look wonderful for a moment, look to the seed. And so we understand through the metaphor of the seed, something really important, For the metaphor of the seed, or metaphor of seeds, helps us understand how God transports His plans for renewal across time and space. Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. That it was the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so the birds come and perch in its branches. He is contrasting here the kingdoms of the world, which are illustrated by armies and palaces and grand buildings and great projects, with this tiny, tiny seed. But out of that seed, something grows. Now we get an understanding of this when we translate the word seed to the original Greek that the New Testament was written in and the word is spora. You probably will recognise if you're good with words... This is the origin of a term that we use today, particularly around migration. When we say there is a diaspora of Irish people across the world or of Chinese people or Greek people going out across the world, diaspora means a scattering or a spreading. Diaspora was originally used to describe the way that the Jewish people were spread out from their homeland And through that chain of people spread through the world, the early church then begins to grow in synagogues that were scattered. Those people saw themselves not just as people who had to flee a homeland, refugees on the run. That's what it looked like from the world's perspective, but something bigger was going on. What looked like refugees to the world were actually seeds that God was planting diaspora sent into the world. Things change when you look at it, not through the the lens of the world, not through our age of seeing everything through high performance, instantaneous, in the now, but when we see it through a seed, we see the world differently. You see, a seed is something which is part of a process. A seed is seeing a tree on its journey at just one stage. And God has done his diaspora in this day. God has seeded the world with his dream. His kingdom is his plans and purpose for what he wants to do with the world, and he will move history towards his ends, and he has a plan and purpose for the cosmos, but he also has a plan and purpose for you. As I said in the prayer, introducing this sermon God actually really likes you God is on your side championing you onto his purposes for you God has planted the seed of his kingdom dream in you we fail to see this because there are moments which don't look like the flourishing garden that we expect to see a bunch of seeds create. Sometimes we miss the fact that God looks at the world through seeds, and particularly in our era of speed, it can sometimes look like what should be a spiritual garden is actually a wasteland. In 1883... On August the 27th, the largest explosion in recorded history took place just above Australia and the explosion that was triggered at Hiroshima when an American bomber dropped an atomic bomb, this explosion actually was 10,000 times more powerful than this. It was heard over 3,000 miles away in Darwin, the explosion killed over 36,000 people and destroyed more than three quarters of the island which exploded. It was literally blown to pieces. This explosion was so large that actually global temperatures dropped for one and almost just under one and a half degrees for the next five years. Little bizarre art history anecdote here that actually this created the most incredible, rich, Technicolor sunsets all across Europe. Many of the advances that you actually see in painting around this time of Impressionism and so what, some of this was inspired because all of a sudden people had this incredible palette to paint. The island was literally gone. Like, this is the biggest explosion to probably ever happen in human history. Nothing was more gone and devastated than the island of Krakatoa. After things had cooled down, they went and had a look at it and literally it was nothing. This is rock, this is so hot and explosive, this thing is gone, it is dead. But three years in 1886, after the explosion, a little boatload of botanists headed towards Krakatoa. On the island already, only three years after, the most Insane explosion, utter destruction, they found mosses, algae, even flowering plants and 11 species of fern. They speculated that the arrival of algae enabled the spores or seeds of ferns to become established on the otherwise bare ground. Amongst the plants, there were already two species of grasses and scientists assumed that most of these plants arrived via the wind, seeds, diaspora but some species could have arrived carried by the surf. Further colonization of the barren island, not colonization by humans, but by seeds and plants, then began to accelerate. Seeds beget seeds, seeds turn into fruit, fruit turns into seeds, and multiplication occurs. By 1887, this is only four years after, already young trees were growing, as well as dense grassland and many ferns. And then, 55 years after the eruption of 1883, the island was home to 171 species of plants. One botanist estimates that 40% of the plants came on the wind, 30 floated by sea, and the remainder were brought by animals, which is a very nice botanist way of saying, in animal poo. Seagull poo. Something you never thought you'd hear said in a sermon, the word seagull poo. This is Anok Krakatoa, son of Krakatoa, today. The volcano is still there, but surrounding this absolute destruction is actually now these lush forests. And what this tells us is what seems like moments of absolute barrenness and destruction actually are moments which need to be reframed not as, places which all fertility is destroyed, but actually as moments of germination. Billy, like so many of us who have planted a plant and waited for it to grow, actually can make the mistake of looking at the pot here and saying, nothing is happening. Not realizing that we're waiting on a process. This doesn't happen according to the age of speed lens that we want to have instantly downloaded. What looks like nothing is actually the beginning or a process that's in activation that we actually can't see. And I want to say tonight that the age that we're living in, which many people spiritually decry as an age of secularism or post-Christianity or a retreat of the church, and they talk about different statistics and so on, actually needs to be reframed, not as a time of nothingness, but actually of fallow soil, where under the surface, something is happening. When Billy asked the question, why is nothing happening, under the surface, something was happening. We just can't see it how can something so small when we're addicted to a culture of speed and big and powerful and flashy and impressive how can something so small begin a process of moving to multiplication how can what we're doing here at 5 p.m. in the middle of melbourne when so many other things are going on how can this mustard seed grow how can these things you do praying pushing in over the last few months in this 5 p.m. service, these little decisions. How can these mustard seeds grow into something? Well, they can, because this is how God works. Paul says in Corinthians, when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed. The seed tells us that out of little things, big things grow. Thank you, add jingle that that's now in everyone's heads. What looks small and fragile and hidden is revealed as containing powerful growth when we look through the prism of the seed. And sometimes you may feel small, fragile and hidden and when you look at yourself or what God is doing in you through the lens of speed and power and obviousness as today tells us to do. But when you look at this through the actual lens of the seed of the kingdom, out of little things, big things grow. Now what's interesting is that Jesus' teaching on the parable of the sower using this illustration of the seed says this, the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred or sixty, thirty times what was sown. What Jesus here is talking about is good soil. And that's a word that gets thrown around in Christian sermons around seeds. But actually, when you discover how this works, it begins to make more sense. Now, I mentioned a few months ago about a seed that had been germinated or activated that had been in a South American necklace that was 400 years old. They took this little necklace, they broke it open. It was like a shaker. It would make noise as this person 400 years ago in South America had it. And they planted this seed in the ground. Well, I discovered that that's not even close to the oldest seed that's been germinated. The current oldest seed There's even older ones that scientists have done little things to activate. But the oldest seed, which has literally just been taken from a storage place, put in the ground and grown, is actually a seed that was found near Herod's palace in Israel. It was in a cold, cool uh, storage. When the archaeologists discovered it, they put one of these in the ground and it's grown. Because what seeds do is seeds have this ability to be transported over time and distance. They're designed to protect the life within, the possibility of a dream, this tiny little thing which looks so simple, and Sarah put up a sort of cutting or cross reference or something, some scientific picture of a seed last week, and you saw all the different things inside of it. It has its own little food supply in there, it has like the origins of its, its, its what it will be in there, and it's surrounded by this coat. And when it finally moves from a place which is a place of dormancy. See, you think a seed looks dead, but actually it's simply sleeping. The scientists who took that seed out of Herod's temple probably looked at it and said, there's no way this thing is going to grow. This thing has to be dead. This is 2,000 years old. This thing has to be dead. Yet it wasn't dead, it was dormant. And there's dreams in people in this room that you may think are actually dead but are actually just simply dormant. There is dreams God has for His church in Melbourne, the Garden City that seem dead but are just simply dormant. Seeds move from dormancy to activation when they're placed in good soil. The chemical senses in the coat of the seed actually senses in the soil when it's in a warm place, when it's in a nutrient-rich soil, it actually sends a message even after 2,000 years, I'm home. This is the home I was built for. This is the place in which it's safe, to grow. This is the time now to release what was placed in me and understand my link in the chain that I'm actually playing. And I believe the moment that we're in, we're in a moment between moves of God, between renewals, which people look at and go, hang on, there's not a whole lot happening. But actually what I see happening and what I've seen, seen happening over the last few months in this service is actually there's germination happening. There's chemicals sensing in little seeds. Now's the time of activation. Something is growing. Under the surface, something is emerging. What looks hidden and fragile and small to the world is actually now transforming because activation requires transformation. And what happens to the seed is that it begins to sense that something's changing. You've got to have the good soil, but then comes the water. And we've seen that. We've prayed and pushed in for the Spirit to begin to move again in our time for God to come, to not just continue to do religious duties and activities, but actually we need the water of the Spirit, the living water that Jesus promised to come and actually activate the seed that's within us. And when that water comes, there's this really interesting moment which sometimes will prevent the seed being activated. And what happens is, The seed has the coat around it, the protective shell, which enables it to be transported on the wind, as we read with Krakatoa, or on the sea, or in algae, or even in seagull poo. And that protective layer, at this point, must be given up. It must be burst through. It must be shed. And the seed at this point realizes that its role is not simply just to survive, but actually to thrive. And one of the myths of the speed lens of the world, particularly when you can't keep up with the pace and you're seeing people around you, maybe on television, your Instagram feed, whatever, who actually seem to be achieving it all in a way that you can't, is you actually then flip into a survival mechanism. Lower expectations. Hide behind the protective shell. But when good soil is found, when the spirit comes, and the water and the light warms the top of the surface, that's actually the moment to push past the cell. And this is—if you weren't here last week—I encourage you to listen to Sarah's sermon, which is which is so focuses on this point. But Jesus says in John 12:24, "Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed." Now what's really interesting is, Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died so that you won't have to. What else that die in you is actually not you, it's actually the flesh that you thought was you. And when we keep that protective shell, and we can do that as individuals or we can do that as a church, being stuck in the last thing that God did or just being stuck in things which are uh, are simply traditions, so much growth can be held back. But if the seed sheds that coat, let me read down the scripture, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. You are not created just to survive. You are created to spiritually thrive. One of the things that needs to die is that view of the world, that you're just here to survive. I want to illustrate this story or this metaphor with the story. And i told parts of this story before, but as I've focused on this story, God has illustrated new things. One of the things that God did with me As many of you know that I just wrote a book on renewal (coughs) and part of the research for that book was reading stories of how God came and renewed His people and created revivals and awakenings. And one of the awakenings which has absolutely captured my attention is the story of a young count, Nicholas Zinzendorf, who lived in what is modern Germany today. Uh, He was an aristocrat. He had a family estate. But very much from his youth, there was something that God had planted within him. Early on, as a young person, he had this sense that God was building something in him. And he began to dream of how God could act like he did in the book of Acts again. That classic dream which animates so many renewals and revivals. What he read about in Acts chapter 2, he wanted to see happen again in his day. How does he do this when he's meant to be someone who is an aristocrat, he's got this massive estate, he's trying to be a diplomat because that's what the king wants for him. And then he begins to just think of this form of Christianity, which is like this pure Christianity sees of the New Testament. One day, bedraggled mass of a few hundred people wander onto his estate. These people are refugees fleeing a religious conflict in Eastern Europe from a place called Moravia or Bohemia, And they come and ask that they can find refuge on his estate. He's got a big estate, he gives them some land and they begin to build this community. He sees that these people are somehow an answer to a question that God had put before him. He begins to organize them and ask the question of, you know, how can he be a good host to these people? How can he show his Christian faith to them? But then something staggering happens as they meet together to pray. And on August 1727, they experience a dramatic move of the Holy Spirit, which led them to start a prayer watch that continued day and night for the next 100 years. This community at Hernhut became the center of a spiritual revival which led, the, led to the planting of radical missional communities all around the world. Within five years, they sent out their first overseas missionaries to work among the slaves in the Caribbean, even offering to become slaves themselves, if that's what it took to reach those to whom no one else seemed to care about. These people took Holy Spirit principles and asked questions like, what would the kingdom of God look like if we actually created town planning? They rearranged their community around the principles of the kingdom of God and on Zinzendorf's estate started building this incredible image of the kingdom of God. So many things. I could do a whole sermon on things that they did. This this community at the time this is the 18th century, had young teenage women as leaders, unheard of at the time. This group sent more people into overseas mission than had actually been sent into mission in the last centuries by the entire Western church. They prayed and they served and they spread out across the world in what some have called one of the purest moves of the Holy Spirit in church history. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, when he had this renewal moment himself, went and spent some time there and said that he wished God never got him to leave, so close it was to the kingdom of heaven. Now what's so interesting is this happened. Why? Because these people were like a seed and it found a good home because Zinzendorf had centered himself around this one organizing principle. He said, I have one passion, it is He, only He. And so when these people came, they found good soil in which to be planted. Now, this happens, it's this incredible move, God's doing all of this stuff. And what's really interesting is Zinzendorf is off on his role as a diplomat in a city nearby, and he goes to the library. Now, what he'd been doing on is working on this simplified form, like a a form of discipleship that ordinary people could understand. And he goes into a library, and he finds this dusty old book, and it's a book by a man called Cominius. Cominius, you've probably never heard of him, but if you've ever read a children's picture book, he invented them. He is one of the key uh, uh, people behind so much of the Western understanding of education. Time magazine called him one of the thousand most influential people, uh, sorry, hundred most influential people of the last thousand years. Now, he was from Moravia, he was a Bohemian. He lived 100 years before Zinzendorf. Zinzendorf opens this book and sees this man had written down this simple code of discipleship. The Bohemians themselves, 100 years earlier, had had a profound move of the Holy Spirit. Amongst them, this incredible pure form of New Testament Christianity had grown up to the point where actually they began to be persecuted, eventually being driven from their land, many killed, Comenius, looking back as his community were then sent out into the world to be refugees walking around Europe for the next 100 years, prayed a prayer as he left his community. Now, what's so interesting is the little name that Zinzendorf had for his little discipleship code group thing that he wanted to do was called the Order of the Mustard Seed. He then discovers this is the prayer of Comenius. You imagine, you've got this incredible renewal, the Holy Spirit's come, God's done something and that's brought incredible persecution. You're finally having to leave your land and you look back at it one last time and Comenius prays this, Father, preserve a hidden seed to glorify your name. This seed is forgotten by the Bohemians as they wander across Europe. Zinzendorf then realizes that he has been given the seed of the Moravians, these people from Bohemia. That seed then is transported across time. You've got one renewal that happens here 100 years previous to this in Eastern Europe. Where God does this incredible thing. Things then go quiet during this period of war, but then it's planted into good soil, and again the water comes, the Spirit descends, the seed springs into life. So many different seeds. One of them, as I said, was John Wesley. John Wesley has this moment when he sees a group of Moravians praying on the Atlantic Sea on a boat when he's afraid he's going to die in a storm. He goes back to London, And he is in a Moravian chapel, and his heart is strangely warm. And out of that, that comes another seed, which starts Methodism and all these things that happen the Salvation Army, all these different incredible renewals. So we see actually what's happening with these renewals. It's not like, here's a renewal and then nothing happens and there's another renewal. In between these renewals are actually these seed carriers, this diaspora. God is sending out His seeds into the world. They are mini invitations looking for humble hearts for God to do His next thing. I just want to add one more jump of this seed story. A young man is sent out also in a role of diplomacy to Australia from the United Kingdom. He is sent to Victoria, a state at this time of only 4,000 people and he comes out and this is him his name is Governor Latrobe. Governor Latrobe, one of the people who shaped our garden state, was a Moravian. Stuart Piggin, in his history that's just come out of the church in Australia, talks about the fact that what shaped the culture of Victoria and Melbourne from its parklands to the National Library, to the university, was this vision that Latrobe had that was from his deep, biblical, Moravian, evangelical roots of what the Kingdom of God would look like, put into practice in the real world. He talks about the fact that early on, that he had pushed because of this vision, creativity and music creating this culture of music and arts and creativity and a Christianity which engaged with the world, was deeply devoted to the Scriptures, but also engaged with the world and shaped the world around us. So much of what we think of 21st century, creative Melbourne, that... Vienna's got us the last couple of years, but it's almost always the most liberal city in the world, lost by 0.7% percent this year in The Economist thing, not that any of this matters, that vision which we look at actually flows as a renewal seed that goes back centuries. God has a dream for our garden city. We live in a garden city. What is a garden? A garden is something that is grown from a diaspora of seeds. God has a heart for this city. God has a dream for this city. God has distributed these seeds. And maybe they dropped off and maybe people like Latrobe pass and die and Zinzendorf is buried in the ground and Comenius is buried in the ground and John Wesley is buried in the ground. But people pray and send seeds forward. In this room, there are people who have sent out seeds to you grandmothers, maybe in other countries praying for you, uncles and aunties, youth ministers, pastors, who you don't even, maybe have passed away, people who prayed for you when you were children, who you don't even know who they are now, people in other countries praying for us. There are people sending seeds out into the world, people praying for Red Church, for God to move and do something. Seeds are being distributed at this moment. This is not a time with nothing happening This is a fallow time of germination and activation and transformation. God has planted his seed. He's looking for good soil. He's inviting. He doesn't force anything. He doesn't force seeds down your throat. He just distributes them. And Matthew's Gospel says that some people's seeds will be taken by the devil, other seeds will be taken away by the pressure of being a Christian in the culture of that time, other people's seeds will be swept away by the distractions and the lure of wealth and the things of the world, but there will be seeds which find good soil. And red is centering itself around being a place of good soil. This is now a time where we take these seeds and we hold on to the dream that we want to see them thrive and flourish. So my last question to you is, what seeds are you carrying? You can have a mustard seed in your pocket and not even realise What seeds have laid dormant that God wants to do something with again? What seeds are just sprouting in you? What are the dreams that God has distributed? What are the seeds that he's placed on red? What does he want to do in your neighborhood, in our city at this moment, in the world? God is distributing seeds. Seeds are an exciting time. Let's reframe what God is doing at this moment. You are a seed carrier. You can be good soil. So let's stand. We're going to pray. God, seeds are fragile, small, hidden things. And as ordinary people, we can feel fragile and hidden and ordinary and small. But Father, we want to reject the message of the world that you have to be physically powerful, super strong, Able just to keep up and keep up and endlessly energy on. Father, that's not how the world works as you're creating. The kingdom is the place of the mustard seed. And Father, in this room, even if there are mustard seeds that are so tiny, the human eye can't see them, we know that they can grow into something. So Father, we want our hearts to be these pure places where that seed now, perhaps laid dormant for years, can begin to grow into something. Father, we want to see those seeds activated. We see ourselves in a link of great saints and just ordinary people who have prayed and want to see your purposes go forward. Father, we want to be a church which bursts into life, of growth, of fruitfulness which becomes like that kingdom analogy which grows from a mustard seed into a great tree which all the different birds can perch and live in. So Father, just now as we begin to worship, we're just going to spend some time. Father, please, as your spirit comes, show us what seeds we're carrying. Bring seeds back to life. Help us be good soil. We pray in your name. Let's just worship Let's just meditate on what seeds God has given us. Let's see what the Holy Spirit does.